So, Lord, as we do that, as we come, and as our hearts have been lifted up to you and our hearts are now soft before you, I pray that you would just work your word deep within our hearts, your, your word that will cleanse our hearts and purify our hearts. Lord, we want to once again be established in your truth. And so, Lord, may our ears be open to you, and may you, Lord, just teach us now by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning, and you can open up your Bibles. We're going to start a study in a short epistle, the epistle of Jude, second to the last book of the Bible. And so Jude, right before the book of Revelation, Revelation, which we're actually just uh, started studying after we got through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. We're doing a study in the book of Revelation, so come join us as we're looking at those seven letters to the seven churches. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and so come join us on Wednesday nights as we're in the book of Revelation. But this morning we're in, we'll study the short epistle of Jude, and we'll take a look at that. And while you're finding your way, there's one thing I've wanted to mention to you. I, I haven't mentioned this to the first service. I did uh, second service. Uh, in the children's ministry, uh, one of the things is uh, the ministry continues to grow, and, and we're seeing more kids, particularly the second service. The second service is the heavy service, and the, and the Sunday school and nursery is, is, um, is full of kids, which is a tremendous blessing. But and just working and, and wanting to keep the kids as safe as possible and in a safe environment uh, with the active sign-in and, um, and all of that. Also, if we need to, you know, if one of the kids gets sick or, or uh, they need their parents, we want to be able to, to reach you, and it's very difficult now to come in. Uh, it was easier when we were small, and there was just a handful of people. You'd come in and get whoever's child it was. We knew everybody and then went, went back with them, but we can't do that today. Uh, and as I said, particularly with the second service because it's full in here and the coffee shops and the rooms are full and we don't always know all the parents uh, or if they're visiting so one of the things that we have is kids call and uh, to be able to contact you uh, if you're in here and, and, and your child needs you and um, so you know we've gone over different things what to do do we you know get pagers that some churches get and you have a pager and it kind of you know in the restaurant the lights go flashing and stuff and and that's very costly and I thought you know why do we need to do this, you know, costly way and in a complicated way. So there might be a number that comes up, kids call. And uh, so just check your, your number that you have. If, and if it comes up, hopefully it won't be a distraction from uh, the teaching. But we're going to give it a try. We're working the bugs out. So it'll be somewhere here and uh, hopefully not on my forehead. And uh, <laughs> so just a little warning. I think they were trying to do that last week at first service. And some of you are going, what? What's, what's that? Is there a glitch or what's going on or the handwriting of God you know it's just kids call and and if that number goes up check it and then they'll go right back off uh, once uh, you go and and check on your child so that's again just for the safety and and um, having four kids here myself I, I want to make sure if, if parent needs you know or if you know Sue needs to be uh, contacted that that we're able to do that as effectively as possible so the book of Jude the book of Jude as we read Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And so the writer of this epistle, and again a short one, only 25 verses, identifies himself as Jude or Judas. And as we read the New Testament, there are different individuals, of course, who bear the name Jude, who possibly was the one who wrote this letter. There is, first of all, the apostle uh, Judas, one of the original 12, 
not the Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself, but one of the apostles was named Judas, the son of James. But many scholars say that it's very doubtful that he's the one that wrote this letter because there's no evidence, there's no indication that it was one of the apostles who penned this letter. Matter of fact, we're going to see later on as we read in this epistle that it's going to be Jude that's going to say, make sure that you take heed that you, you know, are hearing and receiving the teachings of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if he was one of the apostles, he would have said the teachings that we have given to you. But So he's given indication that he's not one of the apostles. So it probably wasn't Judas, one of the twelve. And then there was another Judas, also named Barsabbas, who accompanied Paul and, Bar- and Barnabas and Silas there in Acts chapter 15 to Antioch. But again, Bible scholars and teachers doubt it very much it was him who wrote this letter. But there seems to be a general consensus among Bible scholars that they believe that the Jew that would pen these words would be the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, who would be, of course, a leader in the early church. He was the pastor in the church of Jerusalem. And we know, according to Matthew chapter 13 and other accounts in the Gospels, that it was Jesus, of course, being the firstborn of Mary, born of a virgin, that it would be Jesus having half-brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph would have, after the birth of Jesus, would have normal relations. They would have, you know, children. And uh, some of those uh, brothers, half-brothers, more accurately, of Jesus are named there in Matthew chapter 13. We know Jesus also had half-sisters. They were, of course, born of Mary and Joseph. And there is the names Judas and James that are among the half-brothers of Jesus. We also know that before the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the brothers, his brothers, did not believe that he was Messiah or that he was the Son of God. We're told that specifically in John chapter 7. The other gospel accounts tell us that they actually thought they, he was a bit out of his mind, that he was carrying and taking this ministry in the Galilee region too far, and so they were concerned about him. And so it was only till after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that they would become believers and then James and Jude would become leaders in the early church. And so it's true with us that when we realize and we come to believe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Jesus and him crucified, he went to the cross dying for our sins, and as we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is alive and rose again from the dead, then we're forgiven, we're saved, we belong to him. That's what makes us believers, and it's a message that we give to others, isn't it? It isn't that Jesus, you know, and can you imagine being the the brother or sister of Jesus, having a brother that was perfect? I mean, never sinned, never called you a name, never punched you or took your toy away from you or whatever it might be. But yet, even though Jesus had no sin and he was perfect, his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Son of God or that he was Messiah until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you see, as we saw and believed in the crucifixion and resurrection, believers ourselves, it's a message that we give to others. The message that we give is not Jesus was just a good person or a good moral person or a good teacher or a spiritual you know, leader, whatever it might be. We 
give the message that Jesus is Lord. He is the Savior of the world that went to Calvary's cross, and he's alive today as he rose from the grave. So others may become believers, just as James and Jude were believers, and they would, of course, come to believe in the truth concerning Jesus, and they would proclaim that truth to others. And as we journey through this epistle, we're going to see that Jude... He wants to write and focus on the message of the gospel, the common salvation that we have in Christ. But we're going to see that he's going to end up writing a more somber letter because there were those in the church that were a threat to the truth that Jude and his brother James were declaring and the other apostles and early Christians were established in. He's going to warn the Christians of apostates that have come into the church that are bringing their heresy and their false teachings with them. Now you may be thinking, Pastor Jeff, we have talked so much about this in the epistles that we've studied before. We went through First and Second Peter where Peter was writing about the same thing, about false teachers and false prophets that had come into the church. We just finished John's epistles. We spent a couple months in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. And what was one of the major themes of John's epistles? That there are false teachers that he called antichrists and he would warn the Christians against them. And so once again we see that Jude is emphasizing that in this short epistle. And so even though we see it once again, we can't get away from it. When we go through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we see it's a major emphasis and it reminds us how much of a problem it was in the early church and how important this is for us to understand that we need to be established in truth, we need to be steadfast in the faith, and that we need to be ones that are discerning in the days in which we are living. So it was a real problem, these false teachers that were coming in, apostates that were making their way into the church. And what makes this epistle so interesting though is that this letter is going to as Jude makes references to eight illustrations from the Old Testament that are going to give us some very important and practical applications for us today how it is that we can remain in the truth and be reminded that there are those who are false out there that will mislead you and the consequences are very serious for that so again Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and 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 brother of James. And so uh, it's interesting that uh, Jude does not say of the brother of Jesus. If it was me writing this, I would have a tendency to say that, to hang my hat on that. I mean, that's pretty neat. You know, Jesus, he was my brother. But he doesn't do that because he realizes that more than just being the half brother of Jesus, that Jesus went to cross for him and died for his sins. And that he is his Lord. And I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And so I serve him alone. And then my brother James. And so here he says I serve him. And then he writes who it is that he's writing to. To those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus. We know that this letter was written to the Christians of Jude's day because of the threefold description of Christians. First of all, we have been called by God. There is no way that we would have a personal relationship with Christ if we were not called, drawn by God. He called us, and all of us who named the name of Jesus responded to the calling of God. Then secondly, not only are we drawn uh, to God as he calls us, drawn by the Holy Spirit, but we are second of all sanctified by the Father, which of course speaks of being set apart by God. Set apart so we will be a servant for Christ 
to bring glory to Christ, called by the Spirit, sanctified by the Father, and then preserved by the Son. Jesus preserves those who trust in him. In verse 2, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So it seems that Jude wanted to write to the Christians again about the salvation that we all have in Christ. That was the initial intent of the letter to the Christians. I wanted to write to you about God's provision and his goodness, his forgiveness, what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, how he's alive today, the blessings that we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. That's what he wanted to focus on. But out of necessity, he says, I need to write to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. That's the truth of the gospel, the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And that word earnestly contend comes from a single Greek word which means to work hard. It can relate to an athletic competition. Somebody who's in a race, somebody who's in an event where they're you know, exerting all kinds of energy. They're working hard in that competition. It speaks of being very diligent. It means to agonize. And so what Jude is saying, that to us is that should be our mindset concerning the the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, the truth of the gospel that has changed our lives. The word has the idea of fight for this. You fight for what is true. You defend that which is true. Fight against that which is a threat to the truth, and you defend that which is true given to you, the gospel, and concerning Jesus Christ. You see, it's not only true for Calvary Chapel Greeley here, this fellowship, but for any other church that's in this city, any other church that is in this world, there will be some that will come in and try to bring that which is false, those apostates, those who will try to draw you away from the truth of the gospel. There will be those who will try to draw you away from God, and they will have influence with you and me if we are not careful. It may come by someone or by some ones, or this is the newest, you know, wave of, of, of what's happening in the church today, the newest understanding, the newest thing, the, the newest revelation that is blowing through the church, and we need to be careful. We need to test everything, as John said, test the spirits to see if they are of God. We test it through the word of God, and we must be ones that earnestly contend for that which is true. It happened in the earliest days of the church when the apostles went out and began to spread the gospel message and to give the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ there were those who were following them coming in and they were bringing in their false teachings in a couple weeks when we go into the book of Galatia or Galatians as Paul's writing to the Galatia churches we're going to see that right away that's what he's going to begin to address he says to them I marvel that you're so quickly moved to another gospel which is not the gospel And so Paul, again, it was concern of his, and we see that throughout the New Testament. And so that's why Jude here and the apostles were given warning after warning against those who would come in and try to take away from the very foundational truths of God's word in the gospel and concerning Jesus Christ. They earnestly contended, they worked at, they agonized over, they laid down their lives to defend that which is true, defending the word of God. 
It would be Paul, again, that would write some of the same words that Jude is emphasizing here to Timothy. In Paul's last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, you recall that last week when we studied that short epistle of Philemon, one of the prison epistles, that I told you that Paul wrote that in his first imprisonment while he was in Rome. Well, what happened after two years of being in, uh, under house arrest in Rome is Paul was released. He would be released by Caesar Nero. He would go about ministering. We don't know exactly sure where he was. He possibly could have been up in that area of Spain. But he would be rearrested as Caesar Nero began to heavily persecute the Christians. He would be brought back to Rome, and he was thrown into a dungeon and into a pit is what he was thrown into, a pit in, in the ground, a big hole in the ground. He wasn't under house arrest that time. It was an awful place. And he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the last words we have of Paul the Apostle there in the New Testament. And it would be Paul that fought for the truth, earnestly contend to, to make sure that the Christians and the churches were established. And he did that up to his last breath. And he wrote to Timothy, he says, You be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of the sort, and we have, they have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. So over the centuries, there have been those who have worked and fought for the truth of what God's Word declares to us. They have lost their lives making a stand for the truth. And so the word here that is given to that generation of the early church is the same word that is given to this generation. It is necessary that, that you can turn, contend earnestly for the faith. And it is something that you and I should feel very strongly about especially in the day in which we're living. Jude is not writing just to pastors or to Christian leaders. He is writing to all the Christians. But too often today, Christians and pastors are not taking heed to what we are being told by Brother Jude here. Sue and the kids went down to see some relatives down this summer one weekend, and you know they went to church with them and, and to remain in fellowship and be in fellowship. And, and the, the church that they went to, that the pastor was given a message and then he would say, he said something that, Jew, uh, that Sue was telling me about, that the pastor said in his message that he had, he had mentioned Second Timothy chapter 2 where it says that you be diligent to present yourselves to prove to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He mentioned that scripture and he said, I don't know what that means. And, and so I asked my wife, what does that mean? And she didn't know what it meant. And, and we were kind of surprised by that. Because my thought is, you better know what that means in these days. And we better be ones that are diligent, knowing what the Word of God has to say. Be diligent. Be a studier of God's Word. And as we go through the Word of God here at Calvary Chapel, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, rightly dividing the Word of truth, as we are seeing the Word of God being proclaimed to us in its context as it is spelled out to us, all the way from Genesis, all the way through Revelation. Matter of fact, this is the last book that we have not covered in the last 10 years. 65 books of the Bibles we've gone through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This last little epistle is the last one. 
And then when we get done, we're going to just keep studying the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And so it's something that you and I need to do. Now, folks, I know that that isn't always pleasing to the flesh. There's a lot of other things that, that we could be emphasizing. Nothing necessarily wrong with those things. Being more entertaining or focusing on stories or other things like that. But the thing is, we want to come in with our Bibles open and we want to be diligent in studying God's Word. Why? Because there's too many voices out there. And there are those that will lead us away from the truth of what God's Word has to, declared. And we see too much of it today. And so I believe that, that many Christians are not being diligent and rightly dividing the Word of God. And I'm not trying to have a critical spirit here, but that's what we see. But rather, as Paul later would write in that epistle, 2 Timothy, he said that in the last days there would be itchy ears. Those turning their ears away from the truth to be turned aside to fables. And that's what we see more and more in the church today. And so you and I, we need to know the truth and we need to stand for the truth, defend the, the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. So fight is what Jude is saying. You defend, uphold the essential truth of the gospel that all true Christians hold in common. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the truth of what God's Word declares. And I feel like this morning that I'm preaching to the choir. I really do. Because you guys come. And you come week after week and you're opening your Bibles and you're learning and you're here in different times. You're having devotions that you should be having every day in your own time studying God's Word. And so notice here, Jude, in verse 4, he says, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And, and I have that underlined it because it means that there is only one gospel, one truth that has been given to us. There is no other gospel. The gospel message doesn't change. The Word of God doesn't change. And perhaps you've had somebody come to you and say, well, you know, the Bible was written thousands of years ago and it was only, you know, relevant to the people back then and, and dealt with issues with the people back there. And, and the Bible should be changed today or looked at differently today because we have issues that are a lot more complicated and the Bible needs to be adapted for today and all these other things and blah, blah, blah. The Word of God is for us today, and the issues that were dealt with back then are dealt with today. And the Bible has the answers for you and for me. And God's Word is unchanging. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Scriptures is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what God declared in 2 Timothy 3. And if we don't believe that as Christians, then we're going to be vulnerable to every wind of doctrine and a different gospel. So verse 4, For certain men have, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord uh, God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude continues with this thought, uh, Beware the apostates. Now what does that word apostate mean? We're going to see that as we continue on that Jude's going to be very specific on the characteristics of those who he considers apostates. And he's going to be very, very definite, very defined in what he says that marks the one who is an apostate, the one who is bringing apostasy into the church. But to, to suffice it to say, an apostate is one who claims to have the truth of God, the one who claims to know God, but they don't. 
And what they do is they don't have the truth of God. They lead others away from the truth of the gospel, from the word of God, and they lead others away from the Lord. And so Jude, again, will explain in more details the characteristics of these apostates. But in verse 4, certain men apostates have crept in unnoticed. This is what made them dangerous. They are unnoticed. They crept in. It's the Greek word that means to slip in secretly. They are ungodly men. Why are they ungodly? It wasn't because they were coming in and using crude language. It wasn't because they were coming in and and dressed inappropriately. It wasn't because they were coming in with a bottle of booze or something. And you can look at them and say, you know, "Uh uh-oh, something's going up, you know, wrong here. That isn't what he means, that they were ungodly. But they were ungodly because of specific reasons. Because what they're doing is they are turning the grace of our God into lewdness and denying the Lord Jesus. Paul, again, when he was addressing those Ephesian elders, and and we were talking about the Ephesian church in in chapter 2 of Revelation, that letter that Jesus wrote to the church. And we learned much from that letter, didn't we? But when Paul, he was earlier, before that letter, Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation, years earlier, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time that he would see them, he would say that after my departure, you're not going to see me anymore, there in Acts chapter 20. But after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, he said, you watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. Paul was earnestly contending for the faith when he was saying that. He was pleading with them, you watch. Remember I warned you with tears for three years that this would happen. And so what Jude is saying here, they are ungodly because, first of all, again, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. What does that mean? Well, we talked about that very you know, specifically when we went through John's epistles. Because John's epistles, again, particularly in 1 John, he was refuting those false teachers that had come in and were saying, that the Gnostics and the others, that, you know what, you can live any way that you want. And, of course, the Gnostics believed that anything material or physical was evil, so your body is evil, and so you can go out and sin and commit uh, adultery or sexual immorality or whatever, and it doesn't matter. God still, you know, sees it and and, and, uh, does not disapprove of it because you can't help it because your body is evil and all of this. So live any way that you want. And so John, he wanted the Christians and us to be established in truth. He said no. That's not the way of the Christian. That we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. And that a Christian is not going to practice habitual sin. He who practices sin has neither seen God nor knows God. And John, what he's saying in that that we will not sin, he's not saying we won't ever sin, but we're not going to go out and practice sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we talked about that quite extensively as we went through that epistle. And so now we have whole denominations today and they're pastors of those denominations and leaders that say, well, you know what, go and live any way that you want. It doesn't really matter. As long as you're sincere and and, and as long as you're nice and as long as you're happy and we want to be, you know, culturally relevant and politically correct and we want to be in tune in what society is saying and all of this and so they're saying that homosexuality is not a sin abortion on demand 
other things that you can do that is contrary to the command of Scripture given to us and how we are to live and conduct ourselves. But it's just as long as you're sincere. And, you know, you say you believe God, that's fine. And so you have a lot of that that we see today. So they are turning the grace of God into lewdness. Paul wrote about the same thing, didn't he, in Romans? He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 6, we identify with Christ. We are dead to sin. We walk in that newness of life. You see, the grace of God is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I love to talk about the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. And one of the greatest aspects of God's grace is the fact that we are forgiven from sin. The fact that we're going to go to heaven, that he loves us. It's a glorious aspect of his grace. That we are saved by what Jesus Christ has done for us. That unmerited favor that has been poured out in our lives because we have turned to him in faith. It wasn't because we deserved it. I didn't deserve to be forgiven or to be one that received salvation or to be loved by God, but he chose to love me. And as I responded to him, the gospel message, his grace poured out on me and on you, forgiven and saved and the blessings and a new creature in Christ. And you see, that's the other aspects of God's grace. Not only experiencing his love and forgiveness and the blessings that we have in Christ, but he also gives us the grace by his Holy Spirit to live a different kind of life. He gives us the power to obey his word and to live a life holy unto him, to live in that newness of life, to live a life that looks like Christ. That's a part of his grace as well. Do we understand that now? His grace includes that I'm going to make you new. And you're going to live the way that I desire for you to live because I came to give you life and life abundantly. And that's how we experience abundant life. And any Bible teacher or pastor that comes along and and declares to the people not to be Christ-like, who does not exhort his people to live for Christ and to surrender to him and to walk with God, to have a passion for him, does not understand that aspect of grace. Our mindset should never be in our hearts of how close to the world can I get? Or how much can I get involved in the world? And, and sometimes, particularly those perhaps who are young, will have that, how much partying can I do? How much can I do without you know, getting too much into it? And our mindset should be, Lord, how close can I get to you? Not how close should I get to the world. Because, Lord, I want to live for you. And Lord, you help me in that. Help me not to be pulled by the world, but Lord, I want to make a stand for you and I want to surrender to you and I want to serve you wholeheartedly. And so certain men have crept in here, verse 4. They have joined the assemblies of believers pretending to belong with them when actually they were the enemies of God. They want to destroy, if possible, the foundation of faith given by the apostles and Jesus himself. Long ago, verse 4 They were marked out for this condemnation. Maybe a reference probably to the Old Testament prophets who wrote about false teachers who misled the people. Now again, on Wednesday nights, 
we finished going through the Old Testament not long ago. All those books, and again, a major theme of the Old Testament, particularly as you get to that section of the prophets, was that the people were involved in idol worship, false worship, false belief, worshiping false gods, and it affected their lives. They They were living in a way that was not the way that God wanted them to and commanded them to. They had strayed off, and so the prophets came along and warned them and warn them and warn them. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah we saw, and all the minor prophets that came along as well, to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, that God is calling you back to himself. Believe in the true and the living God. Get away from and leave those idols and the false worship and the false beliefs. And the warning was given not only to the people but to the leaders, the political leaders as well as the spiritual leaders of the land. And captivity is going to come if you don't repent and turn back to God. And what happened? They refused to listen to the prophets that God had sent and they went into captivity. Judgment came to them by God. The house of Israel going off into captivity by the hands of Assyria. The house of Judah into captivity by the hands of the Babylonians. And a warning was given that God's going to deal with those apostates that are coming along and turning you away from the Lord. And so now we're going to see that Jude is going to give three examples that will show the certainty of God's judgment against those apostates. How the people did not heed the truth of what was given to them by God and they were following after that which was false. Those who were coming in with their destructive teachings and ways and they would affect a whole lot of people just as today. Again, Peter, when he wrote that many people are following the heretics that are coming in to the church. And there are many today that are following after the, the voices of the world and that which is false. And so here he's warning against that, these apostates, how much danger they are, and they are going to be judged. We read in verse 5, But I want to remind you, though, that you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. So God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, didn't he? And they saw the mighty hand of God, the, the, the plagues that came down on Egypt. They saw God open up the Red Sea and they crossed on dry land and then he would drown the Egyptian army. They saw the hand of God working in the wilderness and bringing them manna and bringing them water, providing for them. There, the law of God given to them at the mountain of God. But they would murmur, they would complain. And then God told them, I'm going to give you the promised land. This is your land. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. And I'm going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. You can trust in me. Go in and possess the land. So they would go up to the border of the promised land, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they would send in 12 spies into the land for 40 days. Those 12 spies are there, and they come back, and they're carrying huge grapes, you know, and and all this fruit, and they come back, and it's Joshua and Caleb that's saying, it's a good land. It's just as the Lord said, and even more. And, And let's go in and take it. It's ours. God has given it to us. Let's go take our possession. And here's Joshua and Caleb. I can imagine them. They're, they're, you know, getting their swords ready and let's go into the land and take it. It's so good. They're so excited. But ten of those spies are saying, wait a minute here. We can't go into the land because there are giants in the land. And we're but grasshoppers in their sights. And they have huge cities and huge walls. And we're going to get squashed. And what the voices of ten men 
did was it permeated the hearts of an entire nation, two million people, and saying that we can't, and full of unbelief and rebellion, and it was contrary to what God had spoken. And a whole nation would be affected by that, that that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, would die out there in the wilderness. And what Jude is saying to the Christians is, remember, remember what happened at Kadesh Barnea. There were those, a few, that persuaded a whole nation against what God had declared, what he had spoken. They took what those ten spies were saying above the word of God, and they would receive the judgment of God. And you see, that can happen very easily that there are a few that will persuade a whole lot of people and they will speak against the word of God, they will speak above the word of God. And so Jude reminds them in this first example what happened out there in the wilderness of those apostates, the danger that they are. The second example, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now what is Jude talking about here? He's talking about the, the angels that did not keep their proper domain and left their own abode or their first estate and reserved in, in everlasting chains. And what is he talking about? Well, obviously we know that it would be Lucifer that rebelled against God. Isaiah talks about it. Ezekiel talked about it as well. He became full of pride. He rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. And in his rebellion... Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. But also there would be those, those angels that would join in with that rebellion. And of course they would be fallen angels and they are, are demons that are about today. Now what some say is what Judas essentially saying is that Satan and those demons are eventually are going to end up in, in uh, everlasting change for the judgment of the great day. They're all going to be cast into the lake of fire. We know that's going to be true. We'll talk more specifically about that when we get to the book of Revelation. But there are some Bible scholars that feel like that perhaps Judas making reference to uh, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, because here it says that they left their proper domain, are reserved in chains, and so perhaps some have suggested there are some demons that are in chains right now. Some, a class that is chained up, there's another class that are waiting for that to happen. We know that the demonic world is real. The spiritual world is real. Jesus dealt with demons in the Gospels, and we know that they're about doing Satan's work today. So not all of them are locked up. But perhaps there's a class that is locked up. They left their proper domain, their first estate, and they go back to Genesis chapter 6, where what was happening as the world was populating, that the sons of God, and some have taken that in the Hebrew to mean that perhaps it's speaking of fallen angels. The sons of God, that they were ones that they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, they took wives for themselves, and the result was offspring, was giants were in the land. It's the Hebrew word Nephilim, mighty ones. And what Satan was trying to do is he was trying to pollute the human gene pool so that Messiah wouldn't come. Because in Genesis chapter 3, their first promise of Messiah came as God told the serpent, Adam and Eve had sin. It's a fallen creation now. There is now sin and death that has entered the world, Adam and Eve. And you, serpent, your head's going to get crushed. Because the Messiah is going to come. 
And it was God that would say, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so Satan, not wanting to get his head crushed, he was wanting to pollute the human gene pool so the Messiah would not be able to come. That's the speculation, and that's all that it is, the speculation. We don't know for sure. We don't even know if that's even possible that that can take place. And so now they're chained up, and, and, and of course God saw that the world was full of violence and destroyed the world except for Noah and his family, and the world would repopulate after the flood. So, but the main thing is, is that Judah saying that, that those who rebelled against God and against even Messiah perhaps, polluting man over who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and going to Calvary's cross. And just as those fallen angels were judged, so too will those apostates who rebel against God and his Son and his word given to us. And then the third example in verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a singular manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, have gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So those who are creeping in and are turning the grace of God into lewdness, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we know the story, don't we? We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. How they were two cities that were destroyed by fire and brimstone because of their immorality, because of great sin that was in the city. And so what was worse was they experienced the vengeance of eternal fire, is what Jude writes. So the warning given, don't buy into the lie that you can go out and live any way that you want and that God has, you know, gives his approval or it pleases God or he's indifferent to it. It doesn't really matter. He says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. So these are three examples of apostates who were judged by God. And then as we're going to continue on, In the book of Jude, and we'll finish it up next week, in verses 8 through 16, he's going to talk about present apostates, and then he's going to encourage you and I that we are to be ones that are living pure for the Lord, walking in the truth, defending the truth, because we have a different fate, don't we? And he's going to say that you and I are going to be presented faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. That's what you and I have to look forward to, who name the name of Jesus Christ. But folks... I pray here at Calvary Chapel that we would be ones in love to really stand for the truth, particularly in the days in which we are in. Because I see too many people that are just going off and, and listening to other voices or taking heed to other things that, that aren't in God's word. And we want to be careful. Be established in the truth. Because that's where maturity is going to come. That's where strength is going to come. That's where godly wisdom is going to come. And that's what's going to give you the instructions and the, the you know, guidelines and, and the commands for you to live for Christ. And then the neat thing about it is he's going to enable you to do that. He's going to just do a marvelous work in you, and the Word of God is going to be alive in your heart, and especially in the day in which we're living is people need to hear the truth. And they need people like you that are coming, that are diligent in rightly dividing the Word of God to give truth to others, Because people are confused today. And you know that, don't you? You talk to people all the time that have all kinds of different ideas about God, who Jesus Christ is, about salvation and all these things. And we want to earnestly contend for the truth of the gospel, the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and what the Word of God has to say to you and to me. So let's do that, all right? 
Amen. Father, we thank you for these words again as we're reminded of these things. And Lord, one of the things that I pray for all of us is that we would know very clearly the one gospel and that has been given to us, knowing that there is no other gospel and that your word is true and that even though the heavens and earth will pass away, your word will never pass away. And it's true for us today. Father, I pray if there's anyone that is in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop that has not received the gospel, received God's grace, that perhaps maybe he's calling you by the Holy Spirit speaking to you, come. Because forgiveness is possible no matter what you've done. Jesus Christ died for all of your sins. And the wages of sin is death. That's the truth and part of the gospel message, that all of us have sinned. And sin and death came into the world when Adam fell short in the garden and sinned and Eve. And that Jesus came, the Savior of the world, the only one that could save you and I, who lived a perfect life, the Son of God, God manifested in the flesh, and he died for you.